This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Tick-borne diseases. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Ticks have been roaming the Earth for 100 million years. Scientists have found tick fossils dating back to the Cretaceous period. Ticks are parasitic arachnids that feed on the blood of animals, including sometimes humans. Because of their hematophagic diet, ticks can transmit infections between hosts. And contrary to popular belief, ticks can't actually fly. They generally lie in wait, clinging to trees and grasses until they detect a potential host, either through their breath, body odor, body heat, moisture, or vibrations. Then they grasp onto the host as it passes by. Once they grab onto a host, a tick will remain in place until it is completely engorged, and they can consume up to 200 to 600 times their body weight in blood. Ticks are found across the globe, but generally they prefer warm, humid environments. And due in part to global warming, tick populations are now spreading to new areas and tick-borne diseases in humans are increasing. So here to discuss the most common tick-borne infection, Lyme disease, is Dr. Josh Watson. Josh is an internal medicine and pediatrics physician specializing in pediatric infectious diseases at Nationwide Children's Hospital. He'll lead us through the epidemiology, presentation, diagnosis, treatment, and complications of Lyme disease. Josh, welcome to MedNet. Thanks, Jing Jing. It's nice to be here. Josh, here in Central Ohio, rates of Lyme disease is increasing. Is that true for all tick-borne diseases? It's true for some, but to a lesser extent. So. Um, Lyme disease rates in Ohio over the last 10 years have increased about ninefold. And we've also seen an increase uh, from 30 counties reporting cases of Lyme in 2012 
to uh, 60 counties reporting cases in 2021. Another tick-borne illness that's transmitted by the same tick, the black-legged tick, is called anaplasmosis. And over that same um, period of time, there has been an increase in cases reported uh, to CDC of anaplasma in Ohio, but to a lesser extent than we saw with Lyme disease. Other tick-borne diseases, such as um, ehrlichiosis or Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which are transmitted by different ticks, ehrlichia, by the Lone Star Tick and uh, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever by the American Dog Tick have um, seen much smaller increases. And really Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever rates in Ohio have been stable over time. And so um, really it's been the expansion of the black-legged tick carrying Lyme disease and anaplasma that, that where we've seen the greatest increases. Okay, thanks. Now for our audience, if you have any questions about today's program or suggestions for future topics, please send those to us using the chat feature on the webcast player. If you haven't already, please give our website a look at ccme.osu.edu to see our revamped uh, platform. And then you can also find our entire catalog of programs such as immunization updates or HIV update on our website. And if you want to stream the audio-only version of our webcast, you can search for MedNet21 CME on your preferred podcast platform. Now let's learn about Lyme disease. Josh? Great. Well, thanks again for having me. And um, it's been very interesting for me over the past uh, five or six years to begin seeing more and more Lyme disease in my infectious diseases practice, both in the hospital and as referrals to our outpatient clinic. Um, and so I'm hopeful that today would be helpful to um, those of you who may be seeing more Lyme disease than, than you did previously, or, um, or perhaps just understanding some of the less common manifestations of the disease. So I'd like to start with talking about the organism that causes Lyme disease. It's called Borrelia burgdorferi, and it's a spirochete, which means that it is a um, motile corkscrew-shaped um, bacteria that you can see in the photo on the right of the screen. And the large group of this organism is called B. burgdorferi sensulato, and that means in the general sense. In the US, Lyme disease is primarily caused um, by the strain that's called B. burgdorferi sensu stricto. That means in the, in the strictest sense. Um, uh, at the same time, there is a, a much less common species called Mayonii that's rare in the US, but has been shown to, to cause some Lyme disease in the upper Midwest states. In Europe, on the other hand, while they, um, while they do have Lyme disease that is caused by sensu stricto, stricto uh, they also have two other species that we don't see in the United States, uh, B. grinii and B. abzellii. Lyme disease, as, as we've mentioned, is um, transmitted through the bite of a tick. And the vector for Lyme disease in the eastern United States is the black-legged tick, or Ixodes scapularis. This is also sometimes called the deer tick. It's widely distributed in the eastern United States, primarily in the, uh, in the northeast. In the western part of the country, specifically in the Pacific coastal states, there's um, another species called the western black-legged tick, or Ixodes pacificus, and that also can transmit Lyme disease. These ticks feed on mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians. And the black-legged tick and western black-legged tick can transmit other diseases. I mentioned previously anaplasma, um, which is a bacterium uh, that often will cause a disease 
um, that can be sometimes similar to Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever with fever and headache uh, and sometimes rash. And it is transmitted by the black-legged tick. Ehrlichia, um, certain species of Ehrlichia can be transmitted by the western black-legged tick. But actually it's not a disease um, that is transmitted by the uh, Scapularis species in the eastern United States. And so um, here in, in Ohio and in the northeast, um, Ehrlichia is transmitted um, by the Lone Star Tick, or actually more, even more so in, the, in the, the southern states. Also, Babesia can be transmitted by this tick, and uh, this is a, a parasitic infection that infects red blood cells um, and has some similarities to malaria. And then Powassan virus is another um, infection that um, can be transmitted by the black-legged tick uh, and uh, can cause uh, central nervous system infections like meningitis and encephalitis. And so it is important when we are seeing a patient with Lyme disease, particularly if there are unusual manifestations, to consider whether uh, the patient may have a co-infection with one of these other organisms. This uh, is a, a nice slide from the Ohio Department of Health that just shows the, the difference in sizes of the ticks. And so, uh, what I like to point out is, is how much smaller the black-legged tick is compared to the other two common ticks that we see in this part of the country. And um, if you look at the, the, the images of the, of the ticks on the person's finger there, so A is the lone star tick, and that's a, a female lone star. And then you have a female American dog tick in B. And then C is the adult female of the black-legged tick, while D is the nymph stage. And this is important to recognize because, because it is the nymph that primarily transmits Lyme disease to humans. It's been described as, as the size of a poppy seed. And so often the tick bite is missed in a patient who presents with Lyme disease. And so just getting that history of a tick bite um, can be challenging um, when, when a patient presents with symptoms that may be consistent with Lyme. Lyme disease is uh, considered zoonosis. So uh, there's a reservoir for Borrelia that is um, most commonly small rodents. In the eastern United States, it's especially in the white-footed mouse. So the white-footed mouse is pictured here in the photo, and um, he may look cute, but just remember that he uh, could be harboring Lyme disease. And uh, so if a tick would bite that animal, uh, the tick then acquires Borrelia burgdorferi and then can bite a human and transmit it to the human. On the other hand, some animals are considered dead-end hosts. So the white-tailed deer, for example, is a, um, a very important part of the life cycle of the tick, but primarily the adult tick. And so um, the white-tailed deer uh, does, is not a, a reservoir for Lyme disease. In other words, ticks don't acquire Lyme from, from the deer and then transmit to humans. Um, but it, it has been thought that perhaps the expanded population of white-tailed deer is one of the reasons for a rise in Lyme disease in certain parts of the country. Humans also are dead-end hosts, so there's no human-to-human -human uh, transmission or human-to-tick-to-human transmission of Lyme disease. When we think about the epidemiology of this disease, the CDC tracks, uh, tracks Lyme cases through two different mechanisms. The first is through reviewing insurance records where they estimate about 476,000 cases per year. That could be an overestimate um, based on diagnoses that aren't actually um, correct. Um, but the other way that they monitor cases is through what's called the Nationally Notifiable Diseases Surveillance System. 
It's important to note that for Lyme disease, this is, this is uh, passive reporting, it's not mandatory. And so they, the CDC receives about 35,000 reported cases per year. And in 2019, which is the most recent data, the top three states were Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. And so I think it's interesting that, you know, we've always typically thought about Lyme disease as primarily a, um, a Northeast um, type of disease, but, but now really, you know, Pennsylvania is number one in terms of cases. That's not necessarily indicative of cases per population, um, but lots, lots and lots of cases in Pennsylvania that um, now continue to spread westward in, into Ohio. Most commonly, uh, transmission occurs in June or July. This is when that nymph stage of the tick is most active. And um, looking at the data by age shows a bimodal age uh, distribution. So there are peaks at, in the five to nine year age group and then peaks in the 55 to 59 year age group. This is a graph from CDC that shows uh, reported cases of Lyme uh, over time. And this is uh, from that passive reporting system. And so you can see the cases have increased um, over time in, in recent years. Um, you know, part of this is likely due to increases in, in Lyme rates. It's, it's also possible that some of the increase is just related to uh, increased reporting. And then the thought is that the 2020 drop um, is likely related um, to the COVID epidemic and just less reporting as a result of that. Not necessarily decreased cases. Uh, I did want to mention too that on the CDC website, there's an interactive map uh, of the country that is um, a really neat way to see how Lyme cases have spread over time. I think it goes back about 10 years and you can actually just watch the graph evolve over those 10 years. Um, and you can really see the Lyme cases fill in through um, those in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic states and move kind of across Pennsylvania and then into West Virginia and into Ohio. And then you also see it filling out in um, Minnesota and Wisconsin as well. I thought we'd uh, talk a little bit about Ohio. You know, that's, that's where we're located and where I practice. And also, it's really on the front edge of this migration of the black-legged tick and of Lyme disease. And so, um, this, uh, on the left, you see a heat map of Ohio showing the estimated distribution of black-legged ticks. And the darker the green, the more ticks. And so you can see that those, um, the eastern and southern parts of the states bordering Pennsylvania and West Virginia um, are where the, most of these ticks are being found. Then on the right hand um, graph, you see um, Lyme disease being found in the black-legged ticks. Um, and so the, the pink and red demonstrate that um, Borrelia burgdorferi has been found either in um, host-fed ticks or in field-collected ticks. The yellow color indicates that um, that at least there was a, a tick um, tested, but Borrelia was not found. And then the white indicates uh, uh, counties where no black-legged ticks were, were seen. So again, just emphasizes that not only is the tick um, spreading in that, in that eastern part of the state, but, but Lyme disease is as well in those ticks. And then finally, actual human cases of Lyme disease. Um, the, the, the heat map here of Ohio counties shows um, the rates of Lyme disease diagnosed in humans um, based on, on reporting through the Ohio Department of Health. Uh, and again, you see that the eastern part of the state has the highest report, reports. And then the green dots represent cases in 2022 specifically. So these are individual cases. Um, you can see a little bit more in that southwestern part of the state. And then kind of right in the center, there's a little cluster 
Um, and that's Franklin County, that's where we are here. Another thing that's important to note when you look at these data is that they are based on the, on the county of residence of the patient and not necessarily where the infection was acquired. But nonetheless, um, I think it illustrates um, this, in, this rising rates of Lyme in our state. So we'll move on now to talk about manifestations of Lyme disease. And it's, it's helpful to break these down into three categories. You have early localized disease, early disseminated disease, and late disease. So early localized disease on, on your left um, will typically begin between three and 32 days after the bite of the tick. And it's characterized by what's called single erythema migraines. And we'll show some photos of that in a moment. But this is the classic uh, rash that develops um, with Lyme disease. In early disseminated disease, which typically occurs a bit later, about one to three months after the bite of the tick, there are a variety of manifestations, including multiple erythema migraines, rashes, um, cranial nerve palsies, especially cranial nerve seven or facial nerve palsy. Meningitis can occur here, radiculitis and carditis. We'll talk about all, um, most of those in the upcoming slides. And then late Lyme disease is primarily characterized by arthritis, and that occurs usually three months or more after the bite of the tick. So especially in patients who present with arthritis, um, it's very frequent that they don't recall any history of a tick bite, but may have other exposures that, that, that lend, um, lend that possibility, such as hiking, camping, or just the area of the, of the country where they live. So how do we make the diagnosis? Well, in some cases, the diagnosis is clinical. So erythema migraines is a rash that we just need to become um, astute at recognizing and treating based on that clinical diagnosis. Serology is helpful in some cases, and we can test for both IgM and IgG. So IgM appears about three to four weeks after the infection occurs and then peaks at six to eight weeks and then declines thereafter, but may remain somewhat elevated for years despite cure. Um, so in those early cases, that early Lyme disease with erythema migraines, um, because the rash may occur before the development even of IgM, uh, we can't rely on serology to make the diagnosis. IgG then often appears about four to eight weeks after the infection um, and will typically remain positive. Another thing that's important to note is that if a patient's treated early in the disease, they may not develop antibodies at all. Again, just emphasizing that clinical aspect uh, of the diagnosis for erythema migraines. So Lyme serology um, typically starts with what's called an enzyme immunoassay or EIA. There's also an immunofluorescence assay or IFA that can be used. One of the things that's important to note about the EIA is that um, it cross-reacts with many other infections or spirochetes of the normal oral flora. And so false positive results of the EIA um, can be misleading. The EIA uh, then it can often be followed up with what's called an immunoblot or a western blot. And um, this looks at uh, antibodies to a variety of proteins uh, of the organism. So the IG, for the IgM, um, the antibodies um, are against three different proteins and you must have two of the three positive to call that a positive western blot for IgM. And for IgG, there are 10 uh, antibodies to proteins measured and five of those 10 must be positive to call it a positive IgG. So this is a simple uh, diagram of, of the strategy that is recommended to be used for diagnosis. So you start with an EIA, 
or it could be an IFA. And if that result is positive or equivocal, then it's followed up classically by the Western blot, but there is an alternative or called modified two-tier test in which a separate different EIA that's been approved for this use can be used. So you may either get EIA followed by Western blot or EIA followed by different EIA to make the diagnosis. And it's really important that Lyme disease testing is always two-tier testing according to national recommendations. Um, and we should not be starting with the Western blot, but it's important to start with the EIA and go on to Western blot only if the EIA is positive or equivocal. So if we think about how to incorporate the serology into the diagnosis that I showed you earlier. So if we start on the left with early localized disease, serology, as I mentioned, is often negative. So if it's classic erythema migraines, it's recommended not to test, treat empirically based on the clinical diagnosis. If the rash, however, is atypical, then um, it's reasonable to try to test, but you may need to repeat that test in two to three weeks um, to look for um, seroconversion and, and development of IgM and or IgG in that scenario. Um, and you may end up having to decide on treatment uh, before you get those results. In early disseminated disease, you will often have a positive IgG, uh, but not in every scenario. One of the things that's important with the recommendations is if symptoms have been going on for more than 30 days, then really we should disregard the IgM. Remember I said the IgM will usually peak um, around six to eight weeks, but then decline however, can remain positive um, for a long period of time. And so because the IgM um, is less helpful in these scenarios um, where IgG is typically positive, and because the IgM can be falsely positive, um, it's recommended to disregard it. And then for late Lyme disease, patients really should have a positive IgG. They've had the infection for long enough that they should have mounted an IgG um, response um, unless they have an immune deficiency that would prevent that. Uh, and really, we should disregard the IgM. And if possible, to order an IgG without an IgM, that's actually preferred. But uh, often they go together. And so don't, don't, don't um, make a diagnosis of Lyme arthritis based on an IgM is the key point. So uh, moving into the manifestations. So erythema migraines um, can manifest as the classic target lesion with central clearing as pictured on the left of the screen. And it gradually expands over time, over a course of a few days. And often patients with early uh, localized Lyme disease will have some systemic symptoms listed here. Fever, headache, often myalgias and arthralgias, but not usually true arthritis. Uh, they can feel fatigued and they may have lymphadenopathy. Here's some examples of the rash on some, uh, that, that takes some other forms. So in the upper left of your screen, you'll see um, a rash on a darker skinned individual and this, um, this erythema does not have the central clearing, uh, but is indicative of, of Lyme disease. You, could, you can imagine how easy it is to confuse that with a cellulitis. And then in the center of the screen, you see like, the central crust at the site of the tick bite and kind of an irregular erythema spreading out from that. And then to the right of your screen is actually a patient um, whom I saw. And um, this was a, a, a teenage uh, girl who um, initially started with a rash on her thigh, and she had two additional papules, one on her lower abdomen and one on um, her calf that you can see kind of distantly in that photo. And initially she was diagnosed with um, cellulitis and treated with clindamycin, but the rash expanded and ultimately developed the bullseye appearance that you see in the photo. Um, she at the same time had fatigue and myalgias and arthralgias and experienced some headache. 
And so um, uh, ultimately I saw her in our infectious diseases clinic and um, made the diagnosis of multiple erythema migraines. Um, but uh, despite that, she actually never mounted a positive uh, antibody response. And part of that may have been because she just hadn't quite made, made her antibodies yet. And then we treated her still somewhat early in the course, but she did have a disseminated disease. The CDC has a, this nice poster that I like to, to point out that shows different forms of erythema migraines, including different skin types, the crusted centers, um, different shapes and, and colors that can be associated with it. Uh, sometimes it even looks like a bruise on the skin. Um, and then also shows in the lower part a, a, a attached tick with a little bit of a local reaction around it. So that can be a helpful resource for a, a clinic setting or just for a clinician to go review. So how do we treat erythema migraines? Well, regardless of whether it's single or multiple erythema migraines, um, the, treat, uh, the, the recommended uh, antibiotics and durations are the same. So doxycycline times 10 days is kind of the first line recommended therapy. Um, amoxicillin or cefuroxine for 14 days may also be used and are, are acceptable according to national guidelines. And then if you can't use one of the above drugs, azithromycin for seven days uh, has also been, been used but is a less preferred treatment option. The question comes up uh, about using doxycycline in young children. Um, uh, the audience may know that, that tetracyclines have classically been uh, avoided in young children because of the possibility of, of tooth staining. Um, and what's really been shown is that that's much less common in doxycycline. And so uh, guidelines now suggest that for shorter courses, meaning those less than 21 days, it's perfectly fine to use doxycycline in children even less than eight years old. But for longer courses, we still do avoid it. All right, the next manifestation of um, early disseminated disease that I want to discuss is facial nerve palsy. And I'll start with talking about another case here. Um, actually, this patient is, is uh, pictured in the photo. So this is a 16-year-old um, male who came in with headache and neck pain. And because of the severity of those symptoms, uh, he had a lumbar puncture performed in the emergency department due to, due to concerns for meningitis. And that lumbar puncture had over 500 white blood cells, which as I'll show you in a moment is actually atypical of Lyme disease but it had 93% lymphocytes, so a lymphocytic meningitis. Cultures were negative and he improved very quickly and by the next day he was improved even uh, with just a single dose of empiric ceftriaxone. But then on the following day he developed a Bell's palsy. You can see in the photo that he was unable to raise the right side of his forehead. And so um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about facial nerve palsy. So now this, in my case that I presented, it, it occurred in the setting of meningitis, but isolated facial nerve palsy is also um, you know, a fairly common manifestation of early disseminated disease. It usually will last about two to eight weeks, and it typically resolves completely. Somewhere around 80% of patients will have complete resolution. The other 20% uh, will may have some mild residual symptoms and a very small minority, more severe residual symptoms. The treatment for facial nerve palsy is doxycycline for 14 to 21 days. And really, this is the, the um, antibiotic that's been studied, and so it, it's the preferred option over the others that we talked about for erythema migraines. But another thing that's interesting is that the doxycycline actually is thought to have no impact on the course of the cranial nerve palsy. 
it's really just used to prevent, to prevent late disease. We don't want the patient to go on to develop arthritis um, or other late manifestations down the road. <clears throat> another question that comes up is should we use a steroid? So if Lyme disease is known in a patient with uh, facial nerve palsy, then it's really unclear the benefit versus harm of steroid. Previous um, guidelines suggested against the use of steroids. But um, now in patients who are 16 or older, who have a facial nerve palsy, particularly of an unknown cause, because steroids have been recognized as beneficial in, in this scenario for idiopathic facial nerve palsy, it is recommended to go ahead and start that steroid within 72 hours of onset. And, and concern for Lyme disease should not be thought as a contraindication for giving a steroid in that scenario. Okay, I mentioned meningitis and talked about uh, a patient who, who had meningitis. And so we'll flesh out a little bit some of the manifestations of this, uh, of this process. So as I mentioned, it's typically a lymphocytic pleocytosis. The usual range reported is from 50 to 250 white blood cells. Um, note that the, in the patient that I presented, um, he had over 500 white blood cells, so it was a little bit outside that typical range. But often these patients will have normal glucose and just a modestly increased protein on their CSF studies. Another test that can be done uh, when central nervous system infection is uh, a concern with Lyme is what's called the CSF to serum antibody index. So what this involves is sending a simultaneous quantitative Lyme serology um, in um, the CSF and in the serum, and then comparing the, um, the antibody levels in those two spaces, those two fluids. An elevated level uh, in the CSF compared to serum indicates that there's intrathecal antibody production and suggests to us that there's organism present in the uh, cerebrospinal fluid indicative of, of a CNS infection. There is a PCR that's available for, uh, for Lyme disease, but in the CSS, CSF it has very low yield and is really recommended against sending in, in, in most cases. Meningitis can come with some potential accompanying problems. So one that's really more common in children than it is in adults is papilledema and intracranial hypertension. And this can even occur uh, very confusingly without CSF pleocytosis. I actually had a patient like this uh, just a couple months ago who um, had had a rash that was suggestive of erythema migrans and later developed headaches um, and was found uh, to have a normal white blood cell count in the CSF, but did have uh, intracranial hypertension. And when we did the CSF to serum antibody index, it was elevated indicating CNS Lyme disease. Also cranial nerve palsies, I mentioned facial nerve palsy, but other cranial nerve palsies can also occur, though they're less common. And then the radiculopathy can um, be associated with meningitis. So to treat meningitis, uh, one can use doxycycline or IV ceftriaxone. And um, this has actually been a really, I think, beneficial shift in recent guidelines for us as clinicians and for patients receiving this treatment. Because um, prior to the most recent iteration of, uh, of the guidelines from the Infectious Diseases Society of America, IV ceftriaxone was the preferred treatment for meningitis caused by Lyme disease. And of course, that often meant um, placing a, uh, a PIC and sending the patient home on IV antibiotics. But based initially from um, 
a fair amount of data coming from Europe, uh, and then much more clinical experience in the U.S. Now, doxycycline is considered an equal, um, uh, equally appropriate first-line treatment for meningitis, and it can be used orally. That treatment duration is anywhere from 14 to 21 days, and so often I kind of see how quickly the patient responds and decide whether to do that final week of treatment. Other CNS manifestations can include uh, encephalitis, uh, myelitis, where you get spinal cord involvement, or cere cerebellar ataxia. All of these are much less common than meningitis. All right, moving on, we'll talk about um, carditis, and, and I want to present another uh, case for this portion. So, um, a few years ago, I uh, had the opportunity to see a, a teenager who um, developed headache and nausea and then had a syncopal episode. And because of that, she was admitted to the hospital at Nationwide Children's under the cardiology service. They um, received some additional history that this patient had um, been camping in Pennsylvania about one month prior to presentation with the syncopal episode. And that after the trip, she developed a rash around her umbilicus that was she described as a red ring. That lasted about a week, and she had fever for three or four days, and then the rash resolved. And so um, the cardiologist reviewed the, um, the ECG, and, and the rhythm strip is shown at the bottom of the screen. And what you will see, um, if you look at the left of that rhythm strip, is it's very difficult to see the P waves. But if you look closely, they're actually buried in the T wave of the prior QRS complex. And so um, she had first degree uh, heart block in that scenario. As you move to the right, though, you see that she actually drops a beat and then has a progressively prolonging um, PR interval with intermittent drops of the beat, suggesting type 2 heart block. So in this one rhythm strip, we see both um, uh, first degree and uh, second degree, um, and pardon me, type, type 1, second degree heart block. And this ultimately was caused by Lyme disease, and she improved with treatment and her ECG normalized. So carditis can present with varying degrees of AV block, uh, but complete heart block, heart block is quite rare. So should we get an ECG for all patients who have Lyme disease to look for this? And the recommendations say no, we shouldn't. Um, we really should only um, get the ECG if the patients have symptoms, but it is important to ask the patient about things like presyncope, or are they having palpitations, or are they experiencing dyspnea that maybe could be um, caused by heart block, and then, and then obtain an ECG. Treatment for heart block uh, or for um, carditis can uh, utilize uh, doxycycline, amoxicillin, or cefuroxime, and the recommended duration of treatment is anywhere from 14 to 21 days. Usually, if the patient's hospitalized, um, ceftriaxone is what is started initially and then can be uh, stepped down to an oral therapy to finish the course. Um, another manifestation, now moving on to late Lyme disease, is arthritis. And again, I'll tell you about a patient of mine who's pictured in the photo. So this was a five-year-old male who developed a right knee swelling that progressed over a few days. And you can see in the photo that right knee is really um, quite swollen compared to the left. But you also notice that it's not particularly um, red. Um, and if you touched it, you'd find that it wasn't really particularly warm to touch. And so eventually this patient was started, to, started asking to be carried by his parents. Um, and so was brought into the emergency department for evaluation. He um, did not experience fever throughout the progression of this knee swelling. 
And in the emergency department, orthopedics was consulted and they did a bedside tap of the joint fluid and it showed 160 white blood cells, um, which by the way is higher than usual for, for Lyme arthritis. And it had 95% neutrophils in that fluid. And because of that high white blood cell count, he ended up going for a joint washout due to concerns for septic arthritis. Very quickly after that washout, he was feeling very good. By the time I saw him two days after the washout, he was running around the room and literally jumping up and down to show me how good his knee was feeling. That would be very unusual for a patient with septic arthritis even after a washout. His joint fluid culture was negative and um, ultimately his diagnosis was made by serology. Um, remember again, the IgM we don't really care about in this scenario, but his IgG um, EIA was positive, followed by 10 out of 10 IgG bands positive on the Western blot. So arthritis and Lyme disease can be monoarticular or it can be oligoarticular. I once had a patient who actually had shoulder and knee involvement. I was very confused by the shoulder involvement, consulted rheumatology thinking this was an autoimmune disease and was a little bit embarrassed um, when the rheumatologist said maybe this is Lyme disease and in fact it was. Um, typically it's large joints so the knee is involved in over 90% of the cases. And as I mentioned kind of in my case joint swelling and effusion are usually out of proportion to pain. So you get these patients with very large effusions in the knee but many, many times they can still ambulate and they can still, um, their, their, their knee flexion is limited more by just the, the tenseness of the joint as opposed to pain. Another fairly common phenomenon with Lyme arthritis is a Baker's cyst. Um, and um, so that you know, occurs on the posterior part, part of the knee and can be, can be painful. Diagnosis is made by serology in most cases, so again, positive IgG. Um, but then this is a scenario where the PCR test can sometimes be helpful. So you, you can send a PCR from synovial fluid or if a surgery is performed and, and synovium itself is removed and from the tissue. There have been a few studies that have looked at ways to distinguish Lyme arthritis from septic arthritis. So um, some of these we've mentioned already, but I'd like to walk through them. So with, with range of motion, usually in Lyme arthritis, it's mildly limited. Whereas in septic arthritis, it's pretty much universally severely limited. Patients with septic arthritis just don't want to move, uh, don't, really don't want to move the joint at all. With systemic symptoms, often with Lyme arthritis, patients are well-appearing and, and often afebrile, although they may have some fever. Whereas in septic arthritis, we see a lot of systemic symptoms. They're febrile, irritable. They just feel, in general, pretty crummy. Serum, um, absolute neutrophil count has been used to try to distinguish, so less than 10,000 more consistent with Lyme disease compared to over 10,000. Sedimentation rate and CRP also, so ASR less than 40 or CRP less than four milligrams uh, per deciliter. Important to note those units uh, because some labs report it in liter. Um, that, that can be used to help, help distinguish. And then the typical joint white blood cell counts are about 40 to 80,000 in Lyme disease um, and in septic arthritis greater than 50,000 often over 100,000. But there's certainly some overlap and as I mentioned in the case that I presented, my, that child had over 100,000 uh, white cells in the joint fluid, although it was caused by Lyme. In both of these cases, it's a neutrophil predominant. So going back to meningitis for a moment, remember Lyme meningitis is a lymphocytic pleocytosis, so a lot of lymphocytes in those white blood cells. But in arthritis, 
uh, Lyme uh, arthritis typically has a predominance of neutrophils, just like septic arthritis. So Lyme arthritis management. Um, doxycycline, amoxicillin, or cefuroxime are appropriate choices, and 28 days is the recommended initial course. Now this is a scenario in a child less than eight years old where we do typically use amoxicillin rather than doxy because of the prolonged duration. Swelling, however, can take weeks to resolve, and some people have no or just very minimal response to the treatment altogether. They also can develop inflammation in other joints during the course of the treatment. And in some patients, a post-infectious inflammatory arthritis can develop that's not really due to ongoing infection, but, um, but may need management um, with anti-inflammatories and sometimes uh, more advanced therapies uh, where rheumatologists can be helpful. So um, what's recommended to do after that first 28-day course of treatment is that if the patient has just mild residual swelling, you have the, the option to just do observation or give a second course of an oral antibiotic. However, if there's really no response or just very minimal response to the initial treatment, then it's recommended to step up to IV therapy with ceftriaxone from anywhere to 14 to 21 days of treatment. And if they don't respond to an IV course, then our national guidelines say refer to rheumatology because it's likely they have an, a, a post-infectious inflammatory process that needs some more expert guidance on how to manage. So I provided this treatment summary just to kind of run through these different manifestations that we've discussed and the antibiotics um, that can be used to treat them in the durations. And so um, I won't go through them line by line, but, um, but just to highlight that, that for erythema migraines, we have a variety of treatment options for fairly shorter courses of antibiotics. When we get into the more um, uh, organ uh, invasive types of infections with the facial nerve palsy or meningitis, carditis, um, we're going 14 to 21 days. And then for that late Lyme disease with the uh, arthritis, it's 20, 28 days. I did want to take a moment to talk about um, patients who have persistent symptoms after being treated for Lyme disease. And this has been termed post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. It's a, it's a well-recognized syndrome. This often involves pain, fatigue, and difficulty thinking that can last even for more than six months. The cause of this is unclear. Is it autoimmune? Is it persistent infection? Is it caused by something else? Um, it, it also is important to consider other diagnoses um, because some patients may have truly have had Lyme disease, but they may have these more um, vague symptoms that are due to something else. So important to keep the differential broad in patients who present with these persistent symptoms. And there's really no proven treatment other than trying to manage the symptoms themselves. But there is demonstrated harm for prolo from prolonged antibiotics. So the one thing that I can say um, is that um, national guidelines and experts recommend against putting patients on prolonged courses of antibiotics due to persistent symptoms. And we really need to encourage patients that they are likely to gradually improve over months. And even though it may be frustrating, um, you know, I think we're all um, now just much more in tune with things like long COVID and um, in this case, persistent symptoms after Lyme disease certainly can occur, um, but we need to encourage patients that they are most likely going to gradually improve over these months, and so not to be uh, too discouraged. Finally, I wanted to make a couple comments about prophylaxis. So um, if a patient has a tick bite, should we provide prophylaxis to try to prevent Lyme disease? And the answer is it depends. 
So first is trying to define a high-risk tick bite. So a high-risk bite occurs from a black-legged tick, or in the Pacific states, a western black-legged tick. And it needs to occur in a highly endemic area. I'll talk about the definition of that in a moment. And the tick needs to be attached for at least 36 hours. So it takes some time for a tick to transmit the disease. So really it's once a tick is engorged, which takes about 36 hours where, that, where transmission is most likely to occur. But this is challenging because often um, the tick is not available to, to look at and the person who was bit by the tick um, doesn't know how to identify it, um, doesn't know if it was a black-legged tick or not. Um, and, um, and like we said before too, that you know, many patients with Lyme disease don't even recall the tick bite at all. So if prophylaxis is considered, it needs to be provided within 72 hours of tick removal. And the recommendation is to give doxycycline at a dose of 4.4 milligrams per kilogram, up to 200 milligram max for one dose. So um, since we're in Ohio and we've talked about this being kind of on the, on the front edge of the expanding uh, wave of, of Lyme disease, should we provide prophylaxis in Ohio? And currently it's not recommended. So this map um, from the CDC shows in the dark green states uh, those that are considered to have a high incidence. That means that there was an average of 10 confirmed cases per 100,000 persons for three reporting years. In Ohio, in 2019, which is the most recent data available from CDC, um, the incidence was 3.3 per 100,000 persons. So, um, you know, I would urge those of you who are in Ohio to keep an eye on this data and see if these recommendations uh, change over the next few years as we see more and more Lyme disease. Will we be considered uh, an endemic area, that, a state with high incidence, um, and need to consider giving prophylaxis? So that concludes my presentation. I just want to again say thanks for, um, for the audience for uh, participating in this, and, and thanks again to Jingjing and the uh, planning committee for having me. Thank you so much, Josh. That was wonderful. Um, I got a lot of pearls out of your talk, like you can't rely on the tick bite, don't use IgM for disseminated disease, don't test if classic symptoms. So really, really helpful. Thank you so much. Now, with all the complications that you describe with Lyme disease or all the severe manifestations of disseminated Lyme disease, would it be better to treat questionable cases of early Lyme, early localized Lyme disease is, let's say, you know, we have an atypical rash. We're not really sure if it's Lyme disease. It's not really a classic erythema migrans rash. Would, would it be better to go ahead and empirically treat those patients while we maybe try to get serologies? Mm -hmm. Or yeah. is it better to kind of wait? It's a great question. I think, it, I think to some extent it's going to depend on the rash. So what we don't want to do is um, be too quick to prescribe doxycycline to a patient who has a rash that you know, doesn't look completely typical of Lyme and also doesn't look completely typical of cellulitis. Um, so I think there are some, some, some clues that can help. So one is that the, the rash of erythema migraines typically is not painful, um, whereas cellulitis is going to be more of a painful rash. And then remember that erythema migraines will expand over the course of several days. So if you see a patient who has a rash that you're thinking, could this be Lyme, but it looks kind of atypical, I think one thing to do is to, um, to monitor it over a, over a few days and see if it's expanding in size. And then if it is, that's more consistent with Lyme, and you may need to treat. Again, it's, it, it's got to be a clinical diagnosis. 
Um, I did mention that serology can be used in those scenarios, potentially done initially at the time of the, at the rash is evaluated and then repeated a couple weeks later. Um, but that is a, more of a delayed diagnosis. And again, if you decide to treat, you may not even see the antibodies be positive. Mm -hmm. And is, um, so you mentioned that erythema migrams is not painful. Um, are there other distinguishing features? Because you would think, you know, just like a mosquito bite with a tick bite, you might expect a local reaction. And how would you differentiate a local, a normal local reaction from a tick bite without actually mm -hmm. transmitting any tick-borne infections and something like erythema migrans? Or is it itchy? Is there other things that we can look for? Sure. Yeah, so local reactions can occur right around the, the bite of a tick. That's often gonna be seen very early on, uh, you know, even when the tick is, is still attached or has been recently removed or, or fallen off. Um, and that, that may be itchy, um, and is gonna be localized and not typically going to expand over a few days. On the contrary, the, um, the rash of erythema migrans, although it is occasionally a little bit painful or itchy, that those usually aren't predominant features. It's, it's typically just asymptomatic. And um, it's gonna occur a little bit later after the tick bite, so several days after the tick is gone. And, um, and then in that case, also will expand in size o over time. So there's some ways to kind of try to distinguish, is this just a local reaction due to the tick bite itself, um, or is this truly Lyme? And then you know, the other thing to remember is um, that, um, as I said, Lyme disease is typically transmitted when the tick is engorged. So if a non-engorged tick is found, with a local reaction and removed, that's not Lyme disease. Okay, that's really helpful. And then, you know, like you mentioned, sometimes it can be difficult to identify what kind of tick it was that bit the patient. For those of us that are not ID physicians or entomologists, what are some tools we can use to help identify the tip? Yeah, great question. So first of all, as an ID physician, I'm not necessarily a tick identification expert. So <laughs> I rely on the same resources that I'm gonna suggest to others. The best that I know of are to go to public health websites. So CDC has lots of photos of the different types of ticks. Um, Ohio Department of Health also has photos of the ticks and, and, and health departments in other states as well. And so knowing which kinds of ticks are present in your area and then um, being able to find public health websites that include lots of photos where you could, where you could um, compare the tick or you know a patient could even compare the, the, the appearance of the tick to, that can, to the pictures can be helpful. Um, but uh, truly it is difficult. And especially when we're talking about Lyme being transmitted primarily by the nymphal stage, it's so small that the, you know, identifying which tick it is is even more challenging. Mm -hmm, for sure. And if you do identify a tick, how would you advise a patient to remove it? Is there a correct way and a wrong way? Yeah, there is. So what's recommended is to use uh, fine tip tweezers to grasp the tick as close to the skin, so as close to the mouth parts of the tick as possible, and then provide steady, even pressure away from the skin to remove the tick. Um, there are some things that are recommended against that have sometimes been tried. So using the heat is not recommended. We don't really want people burning themselves, trying to get ticks mm -hmm. off. And then even things like covering in Vaseline or using uh, fingernail polish to cover the tick to try to encourage it to uh, to d detach is not recommended. Really, you just want to use those tweezers, grasp it as close as we can, and, and pull it off. Okay, perfect. Now, one last question. In patients with post-treatment post Lyme disease, now, or not disease, but syndrome, 
Um, is that more common if the patient received delayed treatment or wasn't detected until the disseminated stage? Is, or can you see that in patients even with treated um, early localized disease? Yeah, you can, you can see that with patients even who are treated with early localized disease. That early infection is often, often accompanied by those, um, by those systemic symptoms like mm -hmm. the headache and fatigue. And so um, even in a patient who's, who had a single erythema migraine, they may go on uh, to develop the post-treatment uh, syndrome. And um, I actually don't know if there are specific data about comparing early localized, early disseminated to late Lyme disease in that, in that scenario, but uh, we need to think about it in, in all stages of Lyme if we're seeing those accompanying symptoms that last. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it sounds like treatment is really just supportive, similar to something like post-COVID. Exactly. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Josh. That was so helpful. Thank you. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point. Josh? Well, Lyme disease can manifest in a variety of different ways, and so it's important to keep on our differential diagnosis um, for patients who present with lots of different types of disease processes. Um, I want to emphasize the key point that we um, adhere to the uh, national guidelines on how to, to make the diagnosis that we use two-tier testing with an EIA followed by a Western blot or a second EIA so that we correctly and appropriately identify patients with Lyme disease and can treat them uh, and cure them uh, and avoid over-treating um, other infections or disease processes that aren't Lyme disease. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to get your CME credit and your MOC points by watching or for watching by logging onto our website at ccme.osu.edu and taking our post test. Join us again next week when my guests, Dr. Lawrence Chan and Helena Rampala are here to discuss insomnia. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.